This is Michael Zuber, and I just wanted to thank you for listening to my One Rental at a Time podcast. Did you know that I took the time to document the entire process I used to learn my market and actually still use today? I released it as a $199 online course via Teachable, and it is called How to Get Started One Rental at a Time. With that, you get access to my private Facebook group and can join our group mentoring calls every Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific. You can find it on my website at onerentalatatime.com. Now on with the show. Michael Zuber, author of One Rental at a Time. And this is, of course, your daily financial news. It is Monday, July 5th. Yes, it is a holiday, but we don't stop. We are going to continue this trend going forward. It's now been more than a couple of years of daily financial news. Uh, So I thank you very much for that. Uh, First and foremost, I want to congratulate everybody who has sent me their information. Uh, After 35 days, so five weeks, uh, we are now sitting at 66 transactions uh, closed. That is amazing. Almost, almost two a day, which includes Saturday and Sunday. So feels really good. Keep it up. Uh, Let me know when you close a transaction. You know, DM me. Uh, your address, and I will put a card in the mail for you. Uh, Pretty awesome to see everybody doing the work. Also, the housing slowdown is real. I'm hearing more and more people uh, reach out to me saying, you were right, inventory is building. My buy box is seeing more opportunities. Uh, So it is going to continue and grow into the second half. I did a whole live stream about the perfect storm that was 2020, kind of reading across the board. Again, I am not talking about a crash. It is simply a slowdown. We're going to go from 100 miles an hour to 50 to 20 to 10. Uh, It is just, it's going to be an environment where people feel less stressed, but it's going to take some time to get there. Sellers, as I've said many times, have unrealistic expectations. And as I'm hearing from realtors, they are telling me, yep, that is true. So a couple quick things. If you want to tell yourself you were part of the first 20,000 subscribers to one rental at a time, uh, you only got to probably probably sometime today we are going to hit that mark. Uh, as last time I checked, we were 35 away. Honestly, never thought we would get here. I'm just a guy talking to a camera, kind of summarizing what he reads every day, trying to grow my rental portfolio, trying to help people to see that this is... Uh, to see all the daily viewers is quite an honor, and you guys make it worth doing this, so thank you for that. Uh, a couple of things to mention. I put in the title, Chicago, Portland, and San Francisco. Uh, do me a favor. I would love to hear um, I would love to hear from investors in Chicago, Portland, or San Francisco. If you own rentals in those cities, I would love to hear from you. I suspect, you know, I did some research on San Francisco. I think it was last week, might have been Saturday. And the city is really still struggling uh, after the last year, right? New York has kind of turned the corner, but San Francisco is still struggling. Uh, I hear uh, there's still some some pain felt in Portland and Chicago, but I want to hear from people investing in those cities. I want to see what's happening on the ground. I don't want to hear from these talking heads. I want to see what's going on. Because all of these great cities will absolutely be great places to live. They may just have a, a short window of time uh, where uh, you know people want to leave. I did see this morning 
that over 78% of the people that reside in San Francisco are thinking about leaving uh, uh, Chicago at 50%. Uh, Portland uh, actually had more people leave than join, really millennials being the ones that have stopped moving to Portland. So, uh, But I want to hear from investors. So if you, if you or someone you know owns rentals in Chicago, Portland, or San Francisco, uh, can you reach out to me? I'd love to talk to them. I would really love to do a live stream or an interview with them, but worst case, I would love to talk to them and see about what's going on on the ground, right? People that look at the market every day would be important. So I want to kind of set up the Fed meeting, right? The Fed meeting minutes released on Wednesday will be the most important thing that happens in the week. It can be market moving. Uh, it may be moving for the bond market, and if it's too much, uh, the stock market as well. So what I'm looking for kind of in this order, right? These are the things I'm looking for. First and foremost is tapering talk. I think there is a general belief of which I have that that will begin in earnest at their August or Jackson Hole meeting. Historically speaking, that in-person session they do is where they come together and kind of tweak or change what they are doing. I suspect that will happen once again. But it'll be interesting to read the minutes because uh, last time we saw that sort of James Bullard was the first one to kind of lean hard, actually saying that rates will go up next year, if you remember. It'll be interesting to see if James is pulling any other members over. Um, so that will be interesting. It'll be interesting to hear what they have to say about inflation. And I think inflation, as I've tried to share for the last six weeks or so, is really two parts. It'll be interesting to see what they say about supply chain, gas, shipping, those things that might truly be transitory. And then finally, what do they have to say about wages? Wages have historically been inelastic. Once you give out a salary or a, um, you know, something to the employees, it's very difficult to take it back. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if the Fed starts to break their inflation talk. I think they will. It's probably too early. Uh, we did see in the June report that wages were up 3.6 when annualized. Uh, I think they're going to have to see that for a few more months, but that is something I will certainly be looking for. Uh, next up, we have the Fed, and I've, done, I've talked about this before, change their kind of focus, right? Historically, it's always been inflation, keep it in check. I think it was about four or five months ago, they said, you know what, we're going to focus on jobs, specifically employment first inflation second that was a tweak to their model it will be interesting to see what they have to say about employment going forward uh, they keep talking about full employment being this 3.6 or 3.7 that it was before the pandemic my entire college education in, in decades of watching the market the rate was always six percent right i mean that is that feels odd to say because the unemployment rate today the u3 is 5.9 don't worry. As I've mentioned many times, U3 has never been more useless than it is today. U6 is 9.8 from memory, so still lots of work to be done. But it's going to be interesting to hear what they say about employment. Uh, really looking for the trend in the Fed, right? There is this dovish, hawkish, slant, easy money, tighter policy. It, it's going to see where they're going. Bullard is obviously on one side, Powell on the other It'll be interesting to see where other Fed presidents come out. And then finally, what are their second half expectations for GDP and unemployment? 
Do they see the jobs picture getting brighter and brighter and we will finally you know, get under 5% on unemployment? Do they see GDP growing more than 5%, more than 7%? Where are these things? So lots of important things to pull apart or read from the Fed meeting minutes that come out Wednesday. Uh, should be very interesting to see. The other thing to look at on Wednesday will be mortgage applications. We had kind of a, well, at this point, you can call it a blip, an anomaly. Uh, 6.9% drop last week. It's a blip until it's a trend, if you know what I mean. And this week, we will see if it is down again. I suspect it will be down again, because again, what am I calling for? I'm calling for the great housing slowdown. So I suspect mortgage applications will dip, which will again, of course, lead to more inventory, more inventory, more days on market, and we finally can get back to a balanced market. This is all part of the process, uh, but it'll be interesting uh, if mortgage apps are down again, and that's on purchases, mortgage apps on purchases. Uh, saw an odd report today, but if you bought a car last year, there's a good chance that it is worth more money used. Folks, if there is ever a sign that this market is wonky, that is it. You have probably heard, like I have heard hundreds of times in my life, the day you buy a used car, you lose 30% when you drive it off the lot, something like that. Well, guess what? If you bought a car last year, you not only didn't lose 30%, but you made money. How weird is that? Talk about a chip shortage, driving unusual behavior in the supply chain. And oh, by the way, let's not forget unusual demand. What did we see a drop off last year? Public transportation. People wanted to drive, so there was a lot more people buying cars. Yeah, I can't believe used cars bought a year ago are worth more today than before. That is just... we. So many things are wonky in this cycle. Once you shut an economy down and try to get it started, this is an experiment um, not, not interested in doing again. Next up, we got Michael Burry. Uh, he is out again calling for a brutal crash. Michael Burry in the real estate space gets a lot of credit for being early on calling the housing crash or really the debt structure crash. Um, a couple of things I want to point out here. Michael Burry became a billionaire because he read, he researched, he actually read, I think he read the, the, um, the tranches of all these bonds and realized they were trash. He read them. They were, I couldn't imagine that was fun. Uh, but also he was patient. He was patient. And he was wrong for a long time until he wasn't. Right? Watch the movie The Big Short. It got uncomfortable. So when I think about Michael Burry calling for a crash in meme stocks and all these other things, you got to remember who he is. He is a consumer of information. He is willing to do work that most won't. Think about reading those bond packages. Nobody does that. Uh, and also, he's patient. He is okay being early because he knows being early, you can get uh, a lot of the reward. But uh, yeah, so that's what I think about Michael Burry. Um, he was right once. Let's see. Let's see what happens again. Uh, next up, I really want to paint the picture of the second half. I think there are three things that I am watching. Uh, they will come in. You know, these are three things I'm watching. We'll we'll see what happens. First is, I do think there will be a second or a part B of the infrastructure bill. I suspect it will be done 
via the budget reconciliation process and not supported by the Republicans, uh, but uh, slammed through. Uh, I expect it to be large, and um, I expect it to be large. We, we shall see what that has uh, on inflation and taxes going forward. Next up, I suspect very soon we are going to start to hear fights about the debt ceiling. Uh, I believe the debt ceiling, uh, we te- technically hit the limit around July 31st, uh, which is interesting timing, seeing as August, the government's not in session. Oops, go figure. Uh, so I expect to hear a lot of debt ceiling fights. Uh, with ultimately probably a government shutdown again. I think this may be similar to what happened before. And then finally, I expect there to be a lot more talk about affordable housing, right? Whether that's mortgage credits or tax this or whatever, I expect there to be a lot more talk about affordable housing in the second half. I don't know if you know this, but Jeff Bezos is out, out, out of Amazon. He is no longer the CEO of Amazon. He had a nice 27-year run. Who wouldn't uh, want to be the richest person out there uh, after 27-year run? The new um, new CEO is Andy Jassy, I think. Jossy? Jossy, maybe? Uh, that is interesting. Yeah, Jeff Bezos is going to go enjoy his life in philanthropy and all of that good stuff. And I think he's still going to space later this month. Man, that just seems risky to me. Crazy. Uh, looking about getting people back to work, I do think July is going to be a blowout job creation, right? We had 850 or so last month. Uh, I'm curious what you think. I think there's four things that are driving the wage discussion. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, or four things driving or preventing people from going back to work. I would love to hear from you which one you think is most important. Uh, there is wages. Right, Either you can talk about unemployment paying you to stay home or the fact that wages aren't the living wage, all of that. Uh, so again, wage inflation, power to the people is happening. Number two, uh, health fears. Uh, there are still lots of people who are afraid uh, to go out and socialize in public. That is their right. That is their choice. But it does seem like health fears are preventing some. There's a skills mismatch. And this is something I think is going on in the big cities. Right. I think something like New York, for example, right? There's a lot of people, restaurants and entertainment that were shut down. People left, moved home, probably got other jobs. And now New York is opening back up and they're shocked that there's nobody that wants to open or work in a restaurant. I think there really is a skills mismatch, right? The, the labor pool that was there isn't there, but we shall see. And then number four is childcare. Lots of single parents. Uh, lots of dual-income families where one has to choose to stay home. Uh, I think all of them are important. I think the one that is getting the least amount of attention is actually the greatest, and that is child care. I think we need to appreciate that the lack of child care is preventing a decent percentage of folks from going back to the labor force that want to go back. But I don't know. I think those are the four things. Let me know what you think below. Which one is, um, I don't know, preventing the most people from going back? Because once we trip that one, we are going to see massive uh, job creation, in my opinion. We have nine, what, 9.1 million jobs available. So it will be interesting. And then the last thing I read uh, was kind of interesting that I did not know. 
Uh, it's amazing how much of U.S. history I don't know. I'm not sure I ever knew, but if I did, we'll see. And that is uh, some facts about the Declaration of Independence, specifically the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Did you know who the youngest and oldest were and what their ages were? So there's a post I saw from a friend that talked about the average age of the Declaration of Independence being 44 years old. That's the average age, 44, younger than me. The average age of the person who signed the Declaration of Independence. The youngest signers were 26. That's younger than my daughter, 26. Uh, that, that honor goes to Thomas Lynch and Edward Rutledge. I didn't even know they signed it, but somebody else did the research. And then the oldest, this person I did know, Benjamin Franklin. He was 70 when he signed the Declaration of Independence. So I don't know, something to think about, right? 1776, uh, 26 years old, you're signing what ultimately would be the most important document. And um, yeah, it's interesting to think what's happened in 245 years. So that's what I got for you today. Uh, we do have Greg Dickerson hopefully coming up in about, what is that, 13 minutes or so. Uh, have a wonderful week, everybody. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye.